Hello, I'm Kate Chabot. Welcome to an extra edition of the SITREP podcast from BFBS Radio. 85 years ago, Britain's armed forces were reluctantly admitting women to the services as the country prepared for the Second World War. By the end, well over half a million had served in military roles. Initially, they were confined to essential but stereotypical jobs like cooking, typing and nursing. But as the war progressed, women went beyond administration and support to become, for the first time, an essential part of British military operations. We'll hear from military historian Sarah Louise Miller how they overcame immense resistance to deliver vital intelligence that helped Britain and its allies win the war. But before she shares her story, two women share their own stories of serving in World War II. My name is Mari Scott. I was in Fort Southwark in Portsmouth, which was a series of tunnels dug deep into the cliffs overlooking Portsmouth Harbour. It was um, a secret communication set up for D-Day. General Eisenhower was in Southwark House, which was a big mansion house in the village at the top of the cliffs. We were deep underground, we were the minions scurrying around underground. But General Eisenhower and all the chafe people were in the mansion house in Southwark Village. So what I was passing, as it was going straight to Normandy, uh, to the beaches, presumably, was coming from Schaaf, from General Eisenhower. I've no idea what the messages were. They were all coded. Instructions, I would have thought. I didn't realise at the time, which was probably a good thing. Mari Scott did her intelligence duties as a member of the Women's Royal Naval Service, while Robbie Hall lied to sign up to the Women's Auxiliary Air Force. I joined the Air Force in December 1940. I was still only 17 and said I was 18. I did my initial kitting out and then we went on to the Moors for our square bashing. We were up there three month, three weeks. And then I came back down, posted to Bomber Command in High Wycombe. I was not involved with the administration of the actual station. I was in a separate building where it was a bit more hush-hush and codes and cipher down the corridor and things. I had to sign the Secrets Act. And eventually, I was engaged to a young lad. We first went out together when we were 15. And he joined the Air Force and was eventually in Lancaster's. So when that happened, I asked for a compassionate posting, which I got to fighter command. And then I was sent to Trimley, which was a radar station. And I was lucky enough to be allowed to stay with my fiance's parents. So that was a cushy number. And um, the radar station was just two long wooden huts, preserved, shall I say, in creosote. From the sky, it looked just like farm buildings because we were in the middle of a field and that sort of thing. And that also was, of course, quite hush-hush and that sort of thing. Robbie's story is far from unique. Thousands like her delivered intelligence that meant the difference between victory and loss, life and death for the pilots of the RAF, the men dubbed the few by Winston Churchill. 
Those women's stories are told and explored in a new book by Dr. Sarah Louise Miller. The Women Behind the Few is a sort of double meaning title. They are behind the men of the RAF in terms of supporting them, but they're also behind them in terms of being hidden behind them in historical memory. I think their place in history is just unquestionably extremely important and significant in the history of the Second World War. We always want to think of women's history as kind of peripheral, and the word auxiliary appears in the title of their service, so it kind of implies that it's uh, they're like a sidekick, but actually, when we really get into it in this book, you see that they are integral to the British war effort, especially in, in the Battle of Britain in the, the summer of 1940. So the book is really an attempt to kind of recover them from the, the, the outer margins of history where they've sort of been confined for a long time. And these women had to overcome incredible resistance to the idea of women working in intelligence. What was the attitude initially? Yes, the British authorities uh, and the military were fairly convinced that women should not be involved in intelligence work based on examples like Marta Hari, because they couldn't possibly be useful in that sense. They, they wouldn't be able to keep secrets. They couldn't be trusted. If they did give information away, it might not even be on purpose. They might just be a bit gossipy. And then there was the fear that they might sort of emotionally buckle under the pressure being kind of face to face with the effects of warfare, which in intelligence work you often are. You mentioned uh, Marta Hari. Can you just explain a bit more about her and the impact she had on attitudes then? Yes, yeah, so in the First World War, you have these examples in the form of Edith Cavell and Marta Hari. So Edith Cavell was a nurse who is quite fondly remembered for indiscriminately saving lives in the First World War, no matter who the patients were, where they were from. She was accused of espionage and was executed. And then you have Marta Hari, who was also accused of espionage and executed. But she was an exotic dancer who sort of slept her way through the, the German high command to, to get information. And you have these two opposing kind of images of women. And Marta Hari is really the one that kind of set the bar for what people thought of women in intelligence. They would be femme fatale, spy seductress, very untrustworthy. And what changed on a practical level? How did women move into these intelligence roles? How did the attitudes change? It kind of had to. So the manpower crisis worsens just as it had in the First World War. As war goes on, you need more and more men at the fighting front. Women can't do that because they're still not allowed in combatant roles um, in the Second World War. So really the, the positions in intelligence work on the home front the military has no choice but to call on women, and it does so begrudgingly. But really, these women prove themselves utterly invaluable to the military, and it's by their success that their options continue to open up. And they worked on the Dowding system and the Wine Network. Can you explain what they were exactly? The Dowding system is the world's first fully integrated air defence system. So we have this brand new technology, radar. So the information on the incoming raids is fantastic, but you have to be able to get it to the fighter pilots who can be scrambled to intercept those raids. And, and the Dowding system is that system. It goes through several kind of processes, this information, and WAF are involved in every kind of um process in that system so they they intercept the information physically on a radar site on the coast they send it to the filter room at Bentley Pryor which is the headquarters of fighter command it's filtered 
um, made sense of basically processed. It's then sent on to be plotted. So WAF are marking on a map of the country. Where is the Luftwaffe right now? What is it doing? How strong is it? Um, and where do we need to intercept it? That information then goes to the fighter squadrons who can be scrambled and, and they meet the Luftwaffe raids as they're coming in. And you have reports from German pilots appearing over the British coast with a welcoming party in the form of Spitfires and Hurricanes and they have no idea how that's happened and it's because of the Dowding system. And the Y network? The Y network is the Y listening service. So this is a network of listening posts around the UK and certain other territories. And basically their job is to intercept enemy radio transmissions. So they might be air to ground, air to air, where the Luftwaffe is concerned. They're also listening to ship communications, even panzer divisions. So you have WAF in the RAF's branch of the Y service listening to Luftwaffe communications between pilots, between pilots and air, uh, ground staff, incredibly useful information. And just how many women are we talking about being part of this effort? Can you give us a sense of the range of roles they carried out as well? Yes, in intelligence, you have lots of different roles. So we have the very overtly intelligence roles, code breaking at Bletchley Park, why listening service where they're actually eavesdropping on the enemy. But then you've got roles that don't appear to be directly intelligence work. And that's a big reason why these women have been overlooked because in communications, for example, you've got telephonists and typists. They don't look like they're involved in intelligence. They look like they're doing clerical work. And in fact, they're, sometimes their titles are clerk special duties. But actually, they are the backbone of the air intelligence system because information, if you cannot get it from A to B, is not of any use. So we're talking, I mean, there's a quarter of a million women served in the, in the Women's Auxiliary Air Force during the course of the war. And of that, tens of thousands of women are involved in the intelligence effort. That's incredible numbers. What was life like for these women? It was, I mean, if you read their diaries, some of them, it's the time of their lives, but it's also wrought with danger and sorrow and difficulty and pressure. So, you know, you go to work every day. If you're working on or near an RAF facility, you are a sitting duck, a target. The Luftwaffe are targeting your place of work. And WAF did die and, and become injured in, in the line of duty. They lost people every day. You know, everyone's losing someone. They are suffering loss and, and the pain of um, the effects of war. Just as everyone around them is, they're still in a war. But they've got this camaraderie that they speak of that pretty much lasted a lifetime. And they, they do speak of their kind of newfound independence away from, some of them are away from home for the first time. Some of them are 19 years old. Some of them are 17 years old. It's, it's really a, a kind of mixed bag of emotions, but certainly a very interesting thing to read about. Sarah Louise Miller has more to tell us about the lives and legacy of women in Britain's World War II intelligence efforts. But I just want to pause a moment to hear again from Robbie Hall and Marie Scott sharing their own stories. I thoroughly enjoyed my five years. All right, I was away from home. So what? So were quite a lot of other people. I mean, my fiancé lost his life over it. But there you are, life goes on. I remember seeing people in the underground, for instance, They'd have bunk beds, and if there wasn't room for that, they'd sleep on the floor overnight. In some respects, they were far worse off than I was. The only time I really got involved was anything when I was at Martlesham Heath, and we um, had a raid one night, and there was 
traces going up and traces coming down and that sort of thing. But on the whole, I can't say I saw a great deal of the... I, I did see an American plane crash because he came in too fast, banked too sharply and just like that. I did see that, mm. but um, I didn't see... I knew a lot about the war. I knew some Spitfire pilots because they modeled from Heath had a Spitfire squadron, but I never saw any real war, I suppose you could argue about it, sort of thing. You know, I was ensconced in my office, scribbling away or typing away or whatever. I was a switchboard operator, a 17-year-old, probably not terribly well-educated. All the schools in London had closed. About a month before D-Day, which of course we had no idea about. I was given training on a what they merely called a VHF set, radio set. You would lift your lever to send all your messages. The recipient would send messages back. What I didn't know was that the recipient on my set was landing on the beaches at that time in Normandy. They were landing. So that when they lifted their lever to return any messages, I heard the war. I heard machine guns, cannon, bombs, men shouting, men screaming, orders being barked. The chaos of war. And for the first few minutes, I was really quite worried. But then I knew I had a job to do, so I got on with it. Murray's story illustrates the extreme sensitivity of the intelligence being handled by thousands of women who not long before had been deemed not trustworthy enough. Some of them uh, were so afraid. I mean, I spoke to a 98-year-old veteran recently and she said she remembered signing the Official Secrets Act and there was a gun on the table next to it. They were told they'd be shot. If they if they revealed anything, but it wasn't just that it was it was strong belief in the necessary secrecy. Some of them went to the lengths of not accepting anesthesia during dental procedures because they were afraid that they would accidentally give something away under anesthesia. And I, I'm pretty sure I, I couldn't do that. <laughs> Yeah, and one of the women only slept alone in the room so that she wouldn't talk in her sleep as well. Yes, there's the fear of talking in, in your sleep and giving away something in your subconscious, and they, they did go to extreme lengths to to try not to even do that. Almost all of these women were working in relative safety of the UK, but there were some who did go behind enemy lines as part of the Special Operations Executive. That's quite a starting turnaround from the beginning of the war when women weren't trusted to be able to keep secrets. Yes, it's only a very small number, but and it's 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 really Winston Churchill's kind of odd brainchild, the SOE. Um, it's a sabotage unit. So the idea is you send agents into enemy-occupied territory to sabotage German operations, but also to boost resistance movements in those places. So these women are parachute-dropped in the dead of night into German-occupied France, um, and their jobs are to send intelligence back to Britain to assist resistance movements. You know, some of them are explosive experts and are blowing up sections of railway, especially before D-Day, to prevent... German reinforcements from getting to the front, and that is quite a startling departure. 
SOE was one of the most secret British military organisations of World War II. Mildred Schutz joined straight out of school, and while she didn't parachute in, she did cross enemy lines in Italy to organise Allied agents. We were known as the secretaries, which was a sort of cover, because they were working as secretaries, but then some of them were operational. There were a lot of women in SOE, and there's very little heard of them. We sent in small plane to get uh, agents or necessary people wanted bringing up back to base. You can't just uh, get on the train and go home. <laughs> Our um, commanding officer said, by international law, a woman should not be armed. And anyway, he said a woman with a gun was more trouble than she was worth, so you wouldn't be armed anyway. But you hopefully had somebody with you who was armed. <laughs> there was another trip which was far more active, shall I say. The senior officer asked me to accompany him and we drove up and got attacked all the way up. A big avalanche of boulders came down one way and landed just, just missed the back of a jeep. I think really if you're driving like blazes in a jeep or anything else, it would be very difficult to use a gun anyway. I feel very proud to a great extent that we are accepted now as being very useful and very necessary, not only in the military but in lots of other jobs as well, which is progress. Mildred, Robbie and Marie and their thousands of colleagues were trailblazers for generations of women who followed, starting the long path which reached its end five years ago with the opening of all combat roles to women. You see in the in the First World War and in the second, you see nurses are sent to the front lines, obviously. And and really that's 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 kind of not surprising because we expect women to be nurses, to be nurturers, you know, like Edith Cavell. They're supposed to take care of people. So you do see them on the front lines, but it's the first time they're kind of sent as a subversive presence where they're they're agents and they're trained to kill and to blow things up. So yeah, it's quite a, an enigmatic um thing in that way. How many of these women did you get to meet? Not many, unfortunately. There, there aren't that many left, um, just a handful. But they are absolutely wonderful. They have such personality. And they really, I think something that really struck me was the fact that they just don't think what they did was that impressive or that important. And that's because, you know, at the time, everybody had to do something. It was our war. It was everybody's war. Um, but it's a struggle to get them to see uh, that what they did actually was incredibly important and very admirable. And what is the legacy today of the women behind the few? I think um, they really paved the way for women in our in our present day military services. I've been lucky enough to talk to some currently serving women in the RAF and in the US Air Force, and they all say that we we point to what they call the greatest generation. They did pave the way for the way that things are today. They have a, a very important legacy and I've been extremely privileged to be able to tell their story. Sarah Louise Muller, great to speak to you. Thank you very much for your time. Thank you for having me. And if you want to read more, Dr Muller's new book, The Women Behind the Few, is out now. Thanks for listening. Bye-bye. This is Sidrev.